So the Gospel lectionary this week is Mark's account of Jesus calling the Syrophoenician woman a dog. About a year ago, I offered a reflection based on a question that Willie Jennings, one of my seminary professors, asked as an essay prompt. Was Jesus a racist? Offer a reflection on both the Old Testament reading in Proverbs and the New Testament reading from James, um, both of which highlight the mandate to care for the poor. Faith without works is dead. This is probably the most well-known verse in James's letter that scholars believe was meant to be a correction to some of Paul's theology that emphasized faith over works. It's easy to look at our New Testament with over half of it written by Paul and think that James was a lonely voice in the early church, but the opposite was actually true. Most scholars believe, or at least the traditional interpretation, is that the writer of this letter was James, the brother of Jesus. And he was actually far more prominent in the early church than Paul was. In Galatians, when Paul writes that Peter, James, and John extended him the right hand of fellowship, he's trying to make a case for his own legitimacy within the church. But the pursuit of that legitimacy was not straightforward. It seems there was always this tension in the early church with James maintaining the need to continue following the law while Paul was advocating for freedom from the law, and Peter somewhere in between trying to hold the two factions together. And I know that 2,000 years later, it's easy to side with Paul and to think that his opponents, of which James was often one, is, you know, legalistic, judgy moralists who shame those who did not conform to their particular interpretation of morality. And no doubt that was true to some extent, and Paul offered a tremendous contribution to the church with his teaching, with his work to include Gentiles fully in the early church. But what I find interesting about James's letter, though, is that time and again the works that he insists must accompany faith is not some seemingly random dietary restriction, you know, like the legalists of his day were accused, or some purity cultural sexual ethic like the legalists of our day insist on but rather it was the essential task of caring for the poor. This is what he said. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. And these verses aren't outliers. In fact, one out of every five verses in James is about caring for the poor. For James, caring for the poor is simply non-negotiable if we are to be people of faith. But I'm even more struck by his analysis of the relationship between poverty, favoritism, and oppression. Again, this is what he writes. For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, While to the one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? I'm so struck by that. Is it not the rich who oppress you? James doesn't believe that poverty is something that just happens or is the result of bad personal decisions or even the result of bad luck. 
He believes poverty happens because the rich oppress the poor. A week from today, we will observe Labor Day. And I think James may invite us to remember that the purpose of this holiday is to honor the contributions of the labor movement. But I think James also invites us to reflect on that movement's shortcomings, particularly the times when it is forgotten who the oppressor is. Historians Wayne Flint and Robert Norrell have written about the interracial labor movement in the early 1900s in Alabama as black and white mine workers and sharecroppers began working together demanding better wages and safer working conditions. But that movement fell apart when the titans of the mines and the wealthy landowners gave modest wages to poor whites and used black workers to break strikes. They decided that if they could drive a wedge between white and black workers and convince them to see each other as the enemy, then they could continue exploiting both. And that story has continued. The problem, so workers are told, is not that Jeff Bezos, for instance, has made enough money off workers not even getting adequate bathroom breaks that he can build his own personal rocket ship. Rather, the problem, so many believe, is cheap labor from Latin America. And to that notion, James cries out, remember who is oppressing you. And while James was written to the poor, Proverbs was written from the perspective of the wealthy. But apparently the writer is someone who has wrestled with his responsibility, not just to be generous with his wealth, but to be very attentive to how he makes his money. It's important to notice the two specifics of the writer's instructions. Those who are generous are blessed, and do not rob the poor, for the Lord pleads their cause. The Aspen Institute is one of the leading think tanks in the world about how philanthropy can create positive social change. However, in 2015, at their Aspen Action Forum, and and forgive me, I'm going to mess the pronunciation of this name up, but Anand Giridharadas created quite the controversy by challenging the underlying assumption of that work, something he called the Aspen Consensus. His work even produced a strong rebuttal from another Aspen fellow, New York Times columnist David Brooks. So in his talk, Giridharadas said... Our deliberations about what to do about this extreme winning and losing are sponsored by the extreme winners. And yet we are a community of leaders that claims to seek justice. These identities are tricky to reconcile. The Aspen consensus, in a nutshell, is this. The winners of our age must be challenged to do more good, but never, ever tell them to do less harm. The Aspen Consensus says, give back, which is, of course, a compassionate and noble thing. But amid the $20 million second homes, it's gauche to observe that giving back is also a band-aid, that winners stick onto the system that has privileged them in the conscious or subconscious hope that it will forestall major surgery that might threaten their privileges. Gerard Harris knows the same thing the writer of Proverbs knows. It's not enough to be generous to those who are in need. He knows what James knows. The poor are poor not just because the rich haven't been generous enough, but because the rich have been oppressive. Perhaps this week before Labor Day, we all might do well to spend a little time contemplating how we can be more generous in our giving, more aware of the harm we are complicit in by how we make, spend, and invest our money, and more committed to the work of repentance and justice. For this is not only the work of the labor movement at its best, but at least according to James, it is the work by which our faith becomes real.